recording started. Um, good morning. Welcome to Ladies Bible Study this morning. It's good to be together um, after about a month break. Or I guess I can take this off. Yeah. It's the best part of teaching. <laughs> Makes the preparation worth it. Um, so it's really good to be back together again. Um, this semester we're going to be studying the book of First Peter. So if you guys want to turn there, um, now we'll be in First Peter chapter 1. Um, let's see if I can find it. There we go. I'm just going to open up in prayer, and then we shall read the first five verses of First Peter 1. I am, yeah. Yeah, let's pray together. Dear God, we just come, and we feel heavy. Uh, we feel the weight of living in a broken world this morning, Lord. And um, Father, we um, just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us on our own in this mess, but God, you walk every step with us, um, that you are our sure and steady anchor. Um, so Father, we cling to that. That is our hope. Um, so we pray, Lord, that you would be with us now as we turn to your word to, to, to look into this hope, um, to see your face and our face. I pray that you would, um, yeah, just help us to know you better today. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, and now I shall read uh, verses 1 through 5, 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, um, just before Christmas, what feels like a lot longer than just a few short weeks ago, um, we finished off our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We spent almost a full year looking at the life of Christ, from his genealogy and his incarnation, to his crucifixion and resurrection. We studied his teaching and learned about how his kingdom citizens are to walk in this life and in the life to come. We also saw Christ opposed and rejected. And at the very end of the book of Matthew, just before ascending back to heaven and sitting down at the right hand of the Father, we saw Jesus gather his disciples to give them their marching orders, their great commission. He told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now coming down from this mountaintop commissioning, we see in the book of Acts, the disciples returned then to Jerusalem and they went back to the upper room where they had all been staying. The disciples were devoting themselves to prayer. However, we see that these men and women, they were not acting. Um, they're not going out to make disciples. They're not baptizing. They're not teaching. They seem to be a little bit timid, or a little hesitant. But this all changed in Acts 2, when we see the scaredy-cat disciples transformed into bold gospel proclaimers. 
the Holy Spirit has come and emboldens the disciples to fulfill their mission. Acts 2.4 tells us that they, the disciples, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The disciples go out from that upper room and there is a multitude of people from across the Roman Empire who hear them and can understand what the disciples are saying in their own languages. Acts 2.9 lists people from Parthion and Medes, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and even visitors from Rome. The disciples were not yet going out into the nations, so the Lord was bringing the nations into them. Some of these locations may even sound familiar um, from verse 1 of Peter's letter. Maybe this was where some heard the gospel for the first time. They believed and then they brought it back to their homeland, um, into the area that is now modern-day Turkey. And please don't judge me for the map. I can't draw. (laughs) Peter stood up and he boldly declared that Jesus of Nazareth, the man whom they knew, whom they saw perform wonders and signs, the man whom they crucified, This Jesus God raised up and has exalted at his right hand. Without shame, Peter preaches the gospel and hearts are changed. Acts 2.37 and 41 tell us, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, continuing on in the book of Acts, um, we now find a bold group of men who are zealous to tell others about Christ. Thousands are coming to know Christ. His church is growing. Those from all nations are hearing of the saving work of Christ and embracing him as their Lord, but not without pushback. Peter and Paul and their gospel partners are being rejected, persecuted, and imprisoned. Their own Jewish people reject them. Civil authorities attempt to dissuade and quiet them. Now, the persecution has not yet escalated to the systematic, intense persecution that is to come. But it won't be long before the Roman emperor Nero would burn imprisoned Christians as torches to give light to his parties. And then within the church, factions are forming based on ethnicity and culture, geography and language. They don't have FaceTime or Zoom meetings or even a codified and completed set of scriptures. Now, in this context, is which this is the context in which Peter penned this letter to the early church. In writing it, he is continuing on in his Great Commission mission, teaching the early believers how to observe all that Christ had commanded them. And so Peter wrote. He wrote to those who were in exile, to those who were grieved by various trials, to those who were maligned for their moral choices, to those who were insulted and accused, to those who were married to unbelievers, to those who were struggling to understand how to submit to and obey a corrupt and pagan government, to those who were being unjustly treated, to those who were surrounded by a culture of sensuality, passions, and drunkenness, to those who were being persecuted for their allegiance to Christ, to those who were struggling to walk in unity and brotherly love, to those whose great enemy was prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour them. Sounds a little familiar. The last few weeks have been pretty heavy for our church family. Who am I kidding? The last two years have been a little heavy for our church family. Um, We've been forced to navigate COVID and varying restrictions and expectations. We felt isolated and lonely. We've walked through the Taylor's departure and the aftermath. 
We have faced job loss and pay cuts. We've been confronted by cancer and strokes. We've been divided over mask mandates and vaccines. We've lost many precious members of our church family. And then we've also seen monumental shifts in our culture at large on issues like transgenderism and euthanasia. We've watched transgender athletes compete at the Olympics and bills like C4 come into effect. And we've noticed a shift in the way that our culture talks about personhood, um, I think particularly in regards to the unborn, the aged, or the disabled. So as we struggle under the burden of the fall and its effects, against the sin and death and chaos that continues to infest our lives, and as our culture at large continues to rapidly slide down the slope of secularization, we need truth. We need Peter's message. Peter's aim in writing this letter was to encourage these believers and to instruct them on how to stand firm in a hostile world. A message that was oh so needed by this original audience, but I think we need to hear it today too. We need to hear Peter say, Believer, fear not, for you have hope. Hope in Christ. Hope in who our God is. You can stand firm in this increasingly hostile world because of who you are in Christ. In an ever-shifting and heavy world, remember Jesus Christ who came and said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. With that, let's take a little bit of a closer look here at um, our verses here in 1 Peter. Now, I've organized our passage into two main sections. Um, Verses 1 and 2 focus on our hope from eternity past. And then verses 3 and 5 focus on our hope into eternity future. Now, let me read um, verses 1 and 2 again for us. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, in this first section, we see Peter identify his audience as elect exiles. As I've mentioned before, these would have been believers living in what is now modern-day Turkey. They were living on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. Perhaps they moved there due to rejection and persecution. Perhaps they'd always lived there. We don't really know. Um, Whether they were physical exiles or not, they, as well as us today, were living as spiritual exiles. This is not our home. We have been elected or chosen by God to be his people. And because of that, we have a better home, a city which God himself has prepared for us. As Abraham, who was called out and promised a new land, those who are in Christ have been called out as God's people and promised a new land. So for now, we live in this world as wanderers, as strangers, and exiles on the earth. By faith and with hope, we await the day when we will experience in full what we have now only greeted from afar. And from eternity past, this was God's plan. He knew his creation would reject him and choose to listen to the devilish snake. He knew that sin would reign in our hearts and our lives. He knew that we would need to be rescued and delivered from the devil, from the world, and from our sinful selves. So he made a plan. A plan to rescue and redeem a chosen people for their eternal good and his eternal glory. God's plan involved all three persons of his trinity, as we see in three phrases in in verse 2. 
um, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Now, this first phrase tells of God the Father's foreknowledge and refers to the fact that God knew from eternity past what was going to happen. But God is not some eternity-old fortune teller in the sky. What has come to pass all of human history, as well as the perfect outworkings of salvation, have happened according to his plan. In every moment, he has been in control. He is not on the sidelines watching history play out, but what occurs does so in accordance with his plan. Knowing that God is in control, choosing his people, and redeeming them unto himself should have been a great comfort to Peter's first readers as it is to us. As one commentator put it, this is the assurance that the ensuring situation of peril is not the result of accident or divine oversight, but is indeed part of God's plan for them. Even the persecution and hostility facing believers is not outside of God's control. And as Peter reminds us, this God is the Father, our Father. He knows us intimately. He loves us. He is gracious to us. He desires our good, even if it is not the good circumstances that we would desire. We don't want pain or suffering, persecution or hostility. But scripture reminds us time and again that God uses these things for our good, to bring us to salvation and to make us more like his son. And this making us more like his son brings us to the next phrase in our passage, in the sanctification of the spirit. If the first phrase gives us the why of our election, according to God's plan, the second phrase gives us the how. We have been elected, chosen, and redeemed because of God's good and foreknown plan by the setting apart accomplished by the Spirit. The word sanctify here means to set apart to a sacred purpose, like our word consecrate, um, but it also means to free from sin, like our word purify. So it's true that the Holy Spirit works in us to conform us more into the image of Christ, to purify us and to make us holy. However, the Spirit also is at work, setting apart believers to now belong to God or consecrating them unto him. Now, this, this changes our identity. Um, once we were living in the flesh to obey our own desires and to bring ourselves glory, but now we're living in the Spirit to obey God's desires and to bring him glory. We will see this theme of our new identity in Christ throughout the book of 1 Peter. As believers are described as being in God, living stones, a holy nation, and God's people. Now finally, let's look at this third phrase in verse 2, and where we see the third member of the Trinity at work. It says, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter has given us the how and the why. He has taught that we've been elected because of God's good foreknown plan by the setting apart of the Spirit. And he is now fleshing out the result of our election, or the so what. Those who are elected or chosen by God are then made to walk in obedience. The language in our verse, obedience and the sprinkling with blood, is reminiscent of the account found in Exodus 24, when God confirmed his covenant with the Israelite people uh, before they entered the promised land. And I'm just going to read here from um, Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. And it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all of the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and behold, and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So in the same way that the Israelites were the covenantal people of God, a kingdom of priests to point the nations of the world to Yahweh, so are believers chosen to be God's people and commissioned to bring his truth to the nations. Under the new covenant, as with the covenant with Israel, there must be obedience and sacrifice. Obedience as we obey all that Christ has commanded and sacrifice as Christ laid down his life for us paying the penalty that we deserve. We can stand firm in this hostile world with hope because our great God is in control and, has, and he has set us apart since eternity past. He has had a plan to choose us as his people, to set us apart, and to work to call us to obedience in him. Now this morning, we've, um, these are some pretty heavy theological concepts um, and phrases and themes um, and I just love how Sean Sheeran this past Sunday put it, um, that when we are lost in the theological labyrinth of man's re- uh, responsibility in salvation and God's sovereignty, or I would add here the labyrinth of election and foreknowledge, um, there comes a place where worship can be our only response. As Romans eleven thirty three to 36 say, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now we've all heard this phrase, um, the already but not yet. Um, particularly in regards to our salvation. We are already in Christ, living as God's children, and our salvation is secure, but we are not yet living in the promised kingdom, freed from sin, pain, and death. This not yet is our future hope, and this is what these next few verses so magnificently describe. As Peter turns now to the not yet of our new birth in Christ, he himself can't help but stop to praise God, as we see here at the start of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll just continue on through five. Um, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In these verses, Peter speaks of our living hope, a future inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, or you could say the not yet of our salvation. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been given new life. In Ephesians 2, um, 1 through 10 tell us that we were dead, for you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This new life will result in a future day when the full picture of God's grace, one we can't even fathom or wrap our minds around, will be revealed. What is now foolishness in the world's eyes will be revealed to be an inheritance that is so perfect, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And what is this inheritance? Verse 5 tells us that it is our salvation in all of its fullness and beauty and majesty, And I should say only full and beautiful and majestic for how it reveals the heart and works of our Father. In the meantime, by God's power, we the believers, we and the believers that Peter was originally writing to are being guarded. As one commentator put it, um, and that's what we see in here, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded. One commentator put it, the picture here is of a soldier guiding and protecting his people as they move through hostile territory toward the freedom of friendly lines. We are in enemy territory. We face threats from out there, temptation, reviling, maligning, injustice, rejection, and hostility. But we also face threats from within, distractions, disunity, and sins such as selfishness or bitterness. We are exiles in a hostile world. But our salvation is living, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, just waiting to be revealed. So let us have hope. Let us stand firm and let us consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And let us walk knowing that our Savior walked as an exile in this hostile world. He stood firm to the very end and he will hold us fast. He will equip and help us to stand firm in this hostile world. I'd just like to um, close by reading Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angel, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, we um, just thank you so much that you hold us, that you love us, Lord, that you have set us apart to be your chosen people. And I pray for those of us who are in you, Lord, that we would find great hope knowing that you have called us and set us apart from eternity past, Lord, and that for eternity future, there will be a day when we will see these things face to face, where we will see your glory revealed and rest in that, Lord. And for those who don't know you, Father, I pray that this would um, just sound sweet and winsome, um, Father, and that you would call those who do not know you um, to be your people, that you would open their eyes to, their, to uh, their need for you, Lord. We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.